This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Miranda Sawyer and I've got some news about the news. By popular demand, Paper Cuts, our brilliant podcast where we look at the madness and majesty of the daily press, is going five days a week. That means you can hear my hilarious guests getting into the obsessions, the weirdness, and occasionally the triumphs of the great British press every day from Monday to Friday. That's Paper Cuts, now out mid-morning every weekday. Follow us now on your favourite podcast app. Paper Cuts, we read the papers so you don't have to. Welcome to Oh God, What Now? The podcast that now stops at Old Oak Common. I'm Dorian Linsky. On today's show, with the Tories' HS2 plans going off the rails, will transport become a key issue at the next election? And how are social attitudes shifting in Britain? We step away from the cultural war battlefield to discuss what the latest social attitude survey tells us. Then, in the extra bit for Patreon backers, the Hollywood writer strike is over. Did they get everything they wanted? And what does it mean for other creative industries? Let's meet the panel. Hannah Fern is a columnist and journalist focused on social affairs. Hello, Hannah. Hello. Suella Braverman gave a speech to US Think Tank on Tuesday, uh, railing against the 1951 UN Refugee Convention and claiming that multiculturalism has failed in the UK. She was swiftly rebuked by the UN and her figures shredded. Was she going rogue, do you think, uh, or doing Sunak's dirty work? I think that... Some, if not all, of this is entirely her own. Some of it is quite remarkable. Particularly her comments about gay people seeking refuge. She said that it's wrong that you can claim refugee status simply for being gay. Nobody has ever done that. (laughs) People claim refugee status for being gay because they are also at risk of being beaten, tortured, imprisoned. um, Converted. In, yeah, in scare quotes. any of those things. Well, apparently, That's what you need to show. Apparently 1.5% of asylum claims in the UK last year cited sexual orientation. So it's a tiny proportion yeah. anyway. Um, and, and this is a real risk. I, why she's playing it down, I have no idea. In Uganda, uh, a new law was passed in May, which directly uh, allows the, the um, punishment of life imprisonment if you're found to be in a homosexual relationship, um, suggesting that this is not the most grave abuses of human rights is bizarre. And actually, that is not Sunak's position. So this feels very much like her going really rogue. You did some weird numbers, didn't she? Because she said that in her interpretation, the UN Refugee Convention uh, gave refugee rights to 780 million people. Uh, currently, according to the UN Refugee Agency, there are 35 million refugees in <laughs> the <maths>. world. <laughs> so, so it's kind of slippery slope gone mad. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, it's really interesting because she's asking questions, I think, around what is a refugee? And she wants us to have those questions within communities. And we know where that leads. It leads to division and hatred. And um But it is an interesting question for the Mm -hmm. Home Office as well, because this is clearly a debate that's going on internally. And if you speak to anyone involved with refugees, they will tell you about the huge difference between people coming from Ukraine uh, and the handling of cases from Syria and Afghanistan. Um, So there is a purely racialized element in that. So I, I think her comments are part of that soul searching that the Home Office needs to do and coming out with some very, very worrying conclusions. Well, she's, she's far right. I mean, she is a, she is, she would be, you know, more suited in a, in a proper far right party uh, than as, as Home Secretary. What I wonder is, is apparently Sunak 
did sign off, number 10 signed off on the multiculturalism has failed. Mm. Which is, you Given know... Given who she is, that's a remarkable statement I suppose she would claim well. that it's not multiculturalism with her. It's assimilation. Like the idea of multiculturalism is is sort of somewhat different. So she's like, well, it's not me, because mm. look at me. I hate other cultures. Uh, other cultures. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm not multicultural. Yeah. I am a, I am a racist. There's um, that line where she said the... She said, um, the ideal number of migrants is not zero. And it, the way she said that suggested it was very, very small number <laughs> above zero. It was like, it was maybe 10. <laughs> so what is she there for? Like, why is she there? Why is Sunak still... Why has Sunak got a far-right Home Secretary who continues to say stuff which seems to be a weird mix of stuff that's been approved and just kind of freelance stats? Well, I mean, politically, they were getting close to the who's left argument and we're, we're in a rundown to what I now believe uh, will be a May general election because and we're going to talk about HS2 later in this show and uh, just symptomatic of how the whole thing is unravelling at such a pace that there's almost no point getting rid of a dangerously um, explosive, I suppose, uh, Home Secretary that can cause him more problems at any point. It's just too much work, isn't it? But she's also freelancing for, you know, the next, to stand as next Tory leader. She's setting out her store for that. She's not going to be the next Tory leader. She may well it's be. It's fucking absurd. She won't be. <laughs> she absolutely won't be. Can we clip be. this we bit? We see. I mean, she's just so, she's not just far right. She is palpably inadequate and immensely unpopular. Now, that didn't stop Liz Truss. I was going to say, there's a, there's a year ago. Yeah, but I, I just, well, I don't know. I, I, I'm pretty close to 100% sure that she will not be Tory leader. And you can clip this and use it against me if she is, because that will not be the worst thing that happens to me that day. <laughs> Ros Taylor is an OG mainstay of Oh God, What Now, who has just finished writing a book about trust. Hi, Ros. Hello, what's an OG? Uh, well, it's from uh, the original gangster. Uh, Ice Tea, oh, original gangster. It Sorry. just means original. You're so you're just so much more up on music. I mean, it's, it's, the song is about I, thirty I years old. So <laughs> you exactly, know. but you know, Ice Tea was never really part of my listening. Um, I just thought, I just everybody, I thought everybody said that. Uh, the Lib Dems conference was this week. Leader Ed Davey managed to get the wrong headlines by diluting the party's pledge to rejoin the EU and being defeated by members on a U-turn over house building. What is going on with Ed Davies' Lib Dems? Lib Dems are in a very difficult place. Um, they badly need to differentiate, uh, differentiate themselves from Labour, and particularly from Starmer's Labour, when obviously when Jeremy Corbyn was in charge of Labour, it was a much easier task to say, well, we're not you know, quite far left as Jeremy Corbyn, we're more liberal and we're more centrist and so on. But now that doesn't really apply in the same way. And looking, listening to Ed Davies' speech, it was a ton of lifeless cliche, except except for the section when he talked about his mother dying of cancer, which he was clearly very, very heartfelt. Mm. And there were, you know, strong, compassionate vibes there. But the trouble is that that is an area where people also trust Labour. And uh, Starmer has also talked about his family's, you know, reliance on the NHS and his mother's illness and, and so on. So it's difficult to to really... Uh, find find the ways that the two parties are different. There's a sense that uh, the, the uh, party is hedging on uh, things like house building, although it was interesting this week to see that uh, uh, the uh, young liberals at the party conference decided to make a stand for house building and against nimbyism, which was quite an an interesting generational divide there in between the younger and older members of the party. But there is still the sense that Labour would be more prepared to push through changes in house building and just would be more determined about it because the Lib Dems are always so dependent on their local activists who are often opposed to it. But given that Lib Dems are not going to be in charge after the next election, you need a distinctive offering. Mm. And you'd think that you would be able to go out there and make it. But Ed Davey is clearly struggling to do so. He doesn't appear to be very good at it. No, he isn't. I hate to editorialise. No. <laughs> but he doesn't seem great. I mean, he comes, he's a, you know, Lib Dem leaders are often very charismatic. Ed Davey sadly is not. Finally, uh, somebody who is charismatic oh, thank is comedian in internet station Matt Green, whose 2024 tour dates are selling fast. Hope they didn't clash with the 
May election that Hannah has predicted. I really hope they don't either, because yeah. I'm going to have to rewrite a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so I just mentioned that Ed Davey has diluted the uh, Lib Dem pledge to rejoin the EU. He hasn't ruled it out. He goes, well, that the the, the long term goal is is rejoining, but it's not on the table right now. Uh, there was a rejoin march through London last weekend with Giva Hofstadt and Gina Miller in the vanguard. I, the consensus appears to be, as with Labour, uh, as well as the Lib Dems, that, um, yeah, you know, it's not going to happen anytime soon. What kind of momentum does Re Rejoin have now? Is it just like it's important to get out there and to, to have a, a protest, but you're not expecting it to happen soon? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I I was asked about the Rejoin March. I think someone invited me to go on it. And I would quite like to have gone, although ironically, I was in Europe um, last weekend, so couldn't make it, um, partly because British Airways cancelled my flight and I couldn't get back uh, in time. Um, and I had a look into it. I mean, I don't think it was a huge march. I think according to their Facebook page, there were about 20,000 people there maybe, which is not bad, but not exactly. That's a lot. It's not like It's not the numbers that we saw for the, no. um, you know, the, the, the anti- uh, Brexit marches of, of 2017 and 2018. Um, and of, of course, there's no political party backing them. Um, and so I think that does mean that they are currently, yeah, the, the vanguard. They are the people right at the front saying this is this isn't sort of fashionable, but this is what we believe in. And I think that's great. And, and also the polling is very clear that uh, I think the latest polls are 50% of people saying rejoin is what they want to do and 30% saying no, or between 30 and 30, sort of five, six. So it's not yet an overwhelming majority, but it's definitely going in that direction. It's funny, isn't it, that, it, that politically they're completely out in the cold and yet they've got about half the country yeah. agreeing with them. So you'd be depressed if they weren't, if there weren't marches like this, right? Yeah. The Greens are actually uh, rejoined now. So they have got the Greens on board. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean like every single party. Fair, Sorry, fair no, no, play no, no, to the no. Greens, you're right. You're <laughs> Doing right. better than the Lib Dems at the Sorry, moment. Sorry, the Greens. And obviously the young people, uh, you know, the, the the tracker polls for the ITV youth tracker from a couple of months ago, you know, 86% of people under 25 say that we should rejoin. So I think there's definitely a demographic shift uh, and there definitely is a momentum. I think the big problem is, would the EU have us back? Mm. I think that's the question mm. that I think um, I'm not sure they would at this point. Well, that's why, one of Ed Davies' excuses, yeah. isn't it? I did have some sympathy with him when he said that. I was like, yeah, no, that is a point. Rishi Sunak and his ministers have been struggling to defend the prospect of cutting HS2 short this week, but should they be just as worried about the country's other transport problems? Hannah, for listeners who didn't catch Tuesday's show, what is the current state of HS2 plans that has made everyone so very disappointed? So, Sunak is under great pressure to scrap the Birmingham to Manchester leg, mainly due to spiralling costs. And there's anger on both sides of that argument. And it's been blowing up this week um, because interventions have been made all over. So, business leaders from Manchester have written uh, to government and said, if you can this, it's the final nail in the coffin of levelling up. We're mm. furious. This is absolutely undermining the whole economy of the North. What's the point of infrastructure if it doesn't reach us? Well, you can't do so levelling up without transport. From, from HS2 through to local bus services, it is, it, it's absolutely fundamental. Yeah, you're right. And then on top of that, uh, Labour have waded in uh, this week and blamed Sunak for allowing spiralling costs to occur on his watch. Obviously, he was um, Chancellor, followed by PM. So, you know, they want to get make sure that everyone's clear that it's not their fault that, you know, mm. Labour has nothing to do with this, we'll wash our hands of it. But I think that's a really worrying intervention because it indicates that they are also gearing up potentially to scrap it. Um, and that would be completely the wrong decision, in my view. Um, so that's very unhelpful. And the other debate that's going on um, you know, is that there's this argument that it should stop at Old Oak Common instead of pulling all the way into Euston. Yes, that would save a bit of money too. But for very many reasons, it's obviously the wrong thing to do. If you're getting on it at Birmingham, Old Oak Common doesn't sound like a destination you want to go to. <laughs> and and you're more likely scrubs. to get one of the slow ones to <laughs> Euston. It makes no sense at all. Um, very, very frustrating debate. That's where we are today. Um, Andy Burnham doing his King of the North bit is threatening to sue the government if the northern leg is axed. Uh, and this is just after he reintroduced locally regulated buses to Manchester after 37 years. Um, he's quite good at politics, local politics. Is he is he onto something with uh, with this focus on transport as something which is very um, is a very emotional issue? Not just emotional if you're having a 
rough time on the train. Um, <laughs> but, but in terms of civic pride, you know, these yeah. Manchester buses, it's it's like they're, they're all B-branded. Sure. And actually, funnily enough, Manchester used to have a pretty decent privatised bus service about 10 or 15 years ago. So um, it may have got worse, but actually it's not, certainly not the worst city served by a privatised system. So the fact that he's latched onto that and taken it in-house, I think you're right. It shows that he realises this is what people are talking about. And he will have also clocked that the Great British Railways fad of Boris was very popular. Uh, it's not actually um, renationalisation, though a lot of people don't understand what it is and they hear it as renationalisation and, and they um, believe it to be positive. So he's copying that a little bit as well in the area that he controls. And obviously younger people love the green economy and want more public transport. So there's a youth vote in it too. Roz, I discovered... Uh, researching this, that Leeds is the largest city in Europe without a, a metro system. Um, and, the, I mean, rural areas are particularly badly represented, you know, serviced, but the the north in general. Is Burnham right to, to feel aggrieved and to make this a regional issue about that London or that Old Oak Common, yeah. as we are now known. <laughs> yeah, no, he he completely is. I mean, this 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 rubbish transport in northern and midland cities is. I mean, it's a symptom of the failure to free up cities to govern themselves and to raise revenue so that they can improve public transport, basically, because the Treasury wants control of everything and to keep tight control of that. And so they just haven't allowed that to, to happen. But the state of northern rail services in particular, and it's not, it's not just the rail because one of the problems with the buses is they are so exceptionally slow because the congestion is so bad in northern cities as well. Right. So, you know, when you're in a bus, you, you, you rely on the, uh, the traffic being free moving or else you're, you're screwed, as we, as we all know. But these, the performance of northern rail and Avanti and Trans Pennine Ex Express <clears throat> has been execrable, really, really bad and lying about the way they cancel the trains, you know, cancelling trains the night before so that they can avoid penalties and things like that. And meanwhile, while the North has basically had to wait years and years and years for just uh, mediocre upgrades to its existing infrastructure, to its existing railways, we've had Crossrail down in London and we've had HS1 um, and it's just, you know, we've had entirely new infrastructure built, which they can only dream of. And it's not just a failure of funding. Um, the UK spends up to eight times more than its European neighbours on road and rail projects. These numbers are quite remarkable. The first phase of HS2 costs £396 million per mile compared with a similar link between Paris and Strasbourg that costs £31 million per mile. The Elizabeth Line cost almost £1.4 per mile, 20 times more than Madrid's subway network, you know, per mile. So why is our infrastructure so expensive? I mean, I like the Elizabeth Line, but that's a lot of money. It's a paradox because I was talking just now about how little power cities have to decide their own transport. But of course, local councils and rural people especially have quite a lot of power to oppose planning applications. And that's been one of the problems and especially one of the problems with HS2 because it goes through some lovely constituencies in the Chilterns and, you know, and, and people who don't want it there. And as a result, they have had to build tunnels in order to avoid spoiling nasty views. Tunnels are immensely expensive. Um, they have had to do all kinds of uh, inquiries which are hugely... Again, you know, take years and years to get through and, and mitigations and all this kind of thing, which delays it even further. The longer it gets delayed, the more inevitably it's going to cost because of inflation. And of course, the cost of land in the southeast is very, very high. Would my favourite plan of criminalising NIMBYism help <laughs> here? <laughs> Well, yes, it depends what you mean by nimbyism, of course. But yeah, uh, one you know, one day when you've moved out to um, to Chipping Sodbury and uh, care we'll deeply about well. your view, Dorian, and I'll be I'm insisting sure you on will be. tunnels. <laughs> yes, because uh, another another uh, factor that has been suggested is the churn in government. And one of the people who had made a big promised a big report on transport was Grant Shapps mm -hmm. four or five jobs ago. Mm. Report mm. has not materialised. Mm. And so this absolute chaos I think we talked about on the podcast recently of, of Shapsism, 
yeah. where it just <laughs> nobody stays in the same job long enough seems to yeah, so create I mean, constant sort of indecision and you foolishly he called the great british railways plan the grant shapps plan which mm. <laughs> basically gave <laughs> them a license to drop it as soon as he left the brief so that was a bit stupid um 72 percent of people tell you gov transport is important to the economy now considering the economy is all that the major parties want to talk about mm. um or mostly um is is that the way to kind of make transport more uh, of a priority is to, is to sort of go, well, look, this is this is what the benefits are in the same way that Labour has had to uh, focus the green, their green plan on the economic advantages. Yeah, I mean, transport can mean anything to different people. I mean, it can be motorways to some people. It can mean bypasses to others. It can mean trains, buses, trams. Uh, you know, so when you say transport, that's a that's a that's a massive term. But the thing is, people like the idea of more better transport in theory, but in practice, when it actually has to be built, that's when the problems come in. There's also, I think, a bit of a problem because people have been hoping that EVs will make electric vehicles will make the difference to and electrifying cars will help to solve the problem. But of course, it will not solve the problem of congestion. It will only solve the problem of, not completely, of pollution. And uh, public, you need public transport in order to get people off the roads in the first place. So that is, although EVs are very important, that's also been a bit of a distraction. Matt, you've just returned from Switzerland and you are swooning sickeningly over the transport system there. Why, why is it so good? What's it like having a functioning transport system? Well, uh, yeah, I've never been to Switzerland before and I went to do some shows in Zurich and Basel and I just found it just kind of quite embarrassing getting there and seeing how incredibly integrated the transport system is, the buses, the trams, the trains, you can get one ticket which covers all of them, even in different cities. So you can buy a ticket in Zurich, which takes you to Basel, and then you get trams in Basel and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's just very well organized. There's trains all the way through the night. It's beautifully clean everywhere. Um, the trains are double-decker trains, which I know there are reasons why that can't always happen in this country, but they are just cool. It did feel yeah, like being very sort of cool. 10, yeah, 20 years ahead, uh, you know, in, in terms of transport. Um, and also just simple things like things kind of run on time. And when they don't, there was a situation where I was on a train quite late at night after a show back from Basel to Zurich, and it was going via somewhere. And there was quite a short connection time, and our train was running a bit late. And I was kind of worried about it and slightly panicking. And I realised that no one else in the carriage was panicking. And it became clear why. It's because when we got to the station, there were announcements in three languages, which is better than... I mean, we barely have announcements in one language uh, <laughs> in some of the trains I've been on. Um, and they explained exactly where our connecting trains were. They'd all been held, all the connecting platforms. We were told where they were. And so there was no problem. No one was worried about it. And I told this story in a gig last night in London and there was just like a, a sigh from the audience of like, oh, imagine that. And it's that's the thing that we, we're so, like in this country, particularly at the moment with all the strikes and everything, that there's so much stress involved in public transport that every time you get on a train, you're worried it might be cancelled or you might, if you book something ahead, you've no idea if it's going to happen. Well, that's why this seems like it's 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 such a personal and emotive issue that uh, people on Twitter may have seen this sort of viral thread from some poor guy um, who's trained to Glasgow. Glasgow. It was Edinburgh via Glasgow. It was Edinburgh yeah, yeah. Glasgow. Stopped yeah. at Preston and then they had to get a fleet of taxis yeah. and then there was somebody else on the same train who was looking after like 50 school children and they had yeah. to secure a coach. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's the reason why these things go viral because everybody sort of, they've either been there or they fear that they, that they could be there. And that it, it is one of those kind of political issues like if you've got a house and you're happy whether you live wherever you you might not care about house building mm. there's lots of issues that you might not care about or they might not directly affect you but transport pretty much affects everyone yeah i remember reading um a very interesting book a few years ago the happiness hypothesis by jonathan Haidt. and one of the things in that he talks about is sort of things that you can cope with and things that you can get better at over time and things that you can't. And one of the things he said, you just, people never, based on various studies, people can never kind of get over is commuting. Like if you have an hour's commute, that will always feel shit for, you know, you'll always, you'll never get to a point where you go, oh, I can just do an hour's commute, no problem. And the idea is that 
if you can reduce that somehow, or if you you know if you can bring offices closer to people, or bring people closer to their offices, that will make a fundamental difference to people's happiness. Because commuting is always so stressful, there's no way of knowing if you're going to be on time every day. You've got to if if there's if there's a chance that the train will be slightly delayed one day, then you've got to leave a lot earlier every mm. day. And it just it's all that sort of dead time, and particularly also for driving. Obviously, if there's going to be a traffic jam, you've got to leave earlier. And so I think yeah, I think transport is just it's very personal, and people kind of get very yeah, very sort of stressed and angry about it. And they feel like there's nothing they can do about it. And I think going to Switzerland was just a moment of like, oh, it can be much better if they if you invest more. And they do. And they're really proud of it. I went on the Swiss um, transport website today, like the government transport, and they're so proud of it. And they make a big thing of, you know, our public transport is the best in the world and we invest so much money in it. And yeah. And they're not constantly competing with each other. I mean, one of the reasons why they were able to delay those trains is because they all run by the same company. Yeah. In Britain, when a train is delayed, the other the other companies don't have an interest in delaying it because then mm-hmm. they, they are going to have to pay or compensation to their passengers for the uh, for, for their for them being late as well. It just all and this all just uses up a vast amount of pointless bureaucracy. And I found some I found some figures actually about Swiss trains, which I thought was were quite interesting, which is that they they invest around a thousand pound, around a thousand Swiss francs, which is roughly a thousand pounds per year per person. And if you compare that to the UK, we invest roughly one thousand two hundred, so more per person in London, but about four hundred pounds all around the rest of the country, or between four and five hundred pounds. And so it shows that yeah, London transport, as we know, is pretty good and the tube's pretty good and the Elizabeth line's great and all that kind of stuff. And the buses are pretty good. But outside the uh, outside the rest of the UK, very much less. I do remember the Swiss trains have been like this for a while because I do remember like uh, I remember a sitcom, but I can't remember which one where a character was boasting about his uh, bowel movements, the regularity. He's uh, as regular as a Swiss train. <laughs> so this this is this has been been yeah. like this and for a long just, time. I've been to I've been to Norway recently, and again their trains are amazing, and they have like crashes on trains and stuff. All right, this you is know. getting sickening. Yeah. Now, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, Hannah, sixty-five percent. Uh, people think government is handling transport badly, according to you, Gov, which is remarkably uh, low. Um, <laughs> Labour wants to do things differently, but the transport website Route 1 claims that little separates the UK's two main parties when it comes to transport policy. Is that fair or do Labour have some cunning plans? I don't actually think that is fair. Um, Labour have really focused on buses so far and what they've been talking about. They haven't, they haven't said much about trains, probably because they don't um, perhaps diverge as much on that. Um, but they've got these, this plan to create a whole um, new set of powers for local areas to take control of their bus service, to reinstate dead routes, uh, and to really try and um, drive local economies by having actually sustainable transport that you can that you can use and can get you to work on time. Because the main reason that most people don't use buses in rural areas, especially in the north, is that they are totally unreliable. Mm-hmm. So you could lose your job if you re- try to use it every morning for your commute. I heard some really interesting stats this week, though, is that one of the reasons that HS2 and the catastrophe therein isn't so frustrating to people, and maybe one of the reasons why that figure is so low, um, th- and you think is that actually more people do use a bus to get to work than use a train for their commute. Mm. So that really actually surprised me, that classic London bubble thing there, because everyone I know does use a train, you know, to get to work or a tube. And um, yeah, so there's a lot to be won. If you get that right, there's, there's a big vote um, to be secured. Matt, uh, with the HS2 failure, the anti-ULES stance and the green U-turns, have the Tories effectively, if not explicitly, just said, we are the party of cars. Cars are great. If you don't have a car, shrug emoji. Yeah. Yeah, it feels to me that they've decided that they're on the side of like the most downtrodden, discriminated against and at risk minority in this country, which is motorists. (laughs) I hate the word motorists. I I mean, I have a car. Yeah, exactly. But if anyone called me a motorist. (laughs) I I identify as a motorist. I think that's the problem is that... (laughs) That people sort of act as though, yeah, as soon as you step into a car, you you lose all interest in pedestrians. <laughs> you don't give a shit about air quality or uh, climate change or, or safety. You just want to get where you want to get as fast as possible. It's almost like an ideology motorist. Yeah. So it's almost like being yeah. like, a, like a Marxist or yeah. something. It's like, yeah. I believe in motoring. I'm a Jeremy Clarksonist. Yeah. You're Mr. Toad. Yeah. 
and, and that's the problem. And, and so there's this idea that, that yeah, that, and yeah, people who have cars do like driving and do like not being stuck in traffic jams and things. But that doesn't mean that they're all, yeah, they're, they're all sort of um, road hogs and love pollution and stuff. It's, it's I think it is mad, um, but it feels like that it feels like Rishi Sunak has basically gone, well, my five pledges haven't exactly set the world on fire, <laughs> so maybe I'll try that. Um, analysis of what Sunak is thinking now has just really come down to like, it's just like, you just assume desperation. Yeah. <laughs> um, Roz, th- I mean, there's lots of issues with trains not getting there or getting there, um, but being startlingly expensive anyway. We also have a wave of tube and rail strikes starting on Friday, uh, when most listeners will hear this episode. Um, the RMT server has been quite popular um, w- with it with its strikes. How about now? Like, are people, um, is people's patience going to wear thin, do you think, with the next wave? Uh, I think it's beginning to, though. It was dropping a little bit between February and May this year. I haven't seen any more recent polling than that on what people think of the RMT. The situation with the RMT at the moment is that the um, or the network rail um, side of things has been settled. So being people like signalers. Uh, Mm. They've accepted a pretty generous pay deal, but they were historically always paid less than train drivers. The train drivers uh, are holding out because they've been offered 4%. ScotRail has offered them 5%. Transport for Wales has offered them even more than that. Uh, But we've, uh, in in England, they've only been offered um, 4% and they haven't had a raise since 2019. So they're pretty unhappy about that. On the other hand, you know, the RMT has been very successful in the past in driving up the wages of train drivers. They are really very well paid. They also benefit from quite a lot of overtime. And the strategy, you know, and they are, you have to have a sort of grudging admiration, for, well, I do, for the RMT because, you know, they, they, they do push it absolutely and they always have the interests of their members at heart. But in a world... You know, the world we're in at the moment where other public services have agreed to settle for 5% and so on, they may well, if they keep on striking, get 5% in the end. But it's, yeah, it's it's frust- it's certainly frustrating for the passenger, put it that way. And I feel it particularly because it just drives people away from the railways. Mm-hmm. The more strikes there are, the less you are likely, you, the more likely you are to buy a car because you haven't got... You know, you just cannot rely anymore. And of course, it's more polluting. You know, I see the difference when there are rail and tube strikes on the roads. There are more cars out there. And that is sad. More more converts to uh, motorism. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Now it's time for a listener question in But Your Emails. Back us on Patreon. We could be answering your question next time. This week, a listener who wishes to remain anonymous. Uh, she was responding to, to an exchange on Twitter about Labour's plan to put VAT on private school fees. Uh, this apparently would give 7% of the population who send their children to private school a good reason not to vote Labour. I am interested listener writes, in the assumption that everyone who went to private school will oppose the application of VAT to private school fees. I went to private school and I have two children in private school. The application of VAT to my kids' school fees will make them much more expensive, yet I'm still supportive of this policy and still intend to vote Labour at the next election. I'm fortunate enough to have a good income, but I will still have to forego a few things to be able to keep my children in their current school. I'm genuinely willing to do that. I am happy to pay more in tax, however that is levied, in order to have a fairer, more equal society. Am I really as rare a voter as Mr Sayers, that's Freddie Sayers of Unheard, uh, seems to assume? I think they are a rare beast in that they're very happy to pay and don't mind the fact that their extra fees are going to the rest of us and educating children in state schools. Well, thank you for that to uh, the writer. Um, But I don't think that they're rare in that they're willing to absorb it. I almost nobody that I know in my social circle who sends their children to private school is going to drop out because, first of all, these people can definitely afford it. I have some friends whose partners are in the city and whatnot. The money is there. Their children are settled. They have made this decision that that's the right mm place for them and above all your your child's happiness comes above everything else so if they are happy in that school 
if you know that most people who can afford private school in this country at the moment with the fees the size of the fees can definitely absorb the extra what, and will do so what drives me nuts about um private school lobbyists um is they always talk about they go these people they talk about aspirational you know working class families who are making Don't sacrifices exist. to send their kids to private school and i'm sure that that, that they exist but they are not your median private school parent who is absolutely yeah. at the limits of their, you know, budget and that this would throw them out of the, of the private school system. You look at the fees, you look at the people that go to them, you look at the people that come out of them and enter politics. Um, and the aspirational working class kids are vastly outweighed absolutely. by the uh, very yeah, rich kids. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's a small amount to a lot of those people, this 20%. Just because for the rest of us, when you're looking at the figures, it's a huge amount, doesn't mean it isn't trifling to, I would imagine, the majority of parents. Now, it doesn't mean they're not going to be angry about it, but they aren't going to take their kids out as a result. Ross, Freddie Sayer's argument in this Twitter thread, which I, which I saw at the time, was that actually, um, I think you'd be reading too much from Matt Goodwin, um, <laughs> said that now uh, Labour was the party of the, you know, of the wealthy and, um, and that this would really hit the Labour vote. <laughs> now, are you convinced that this 7% of the population who, who send their kids to private school um, is, is particularly red? Um, and that this would therefore cost Labour a significant number of votes? No, I'm not. I think I think this is a winner of a policy. Um, I doubt that it will make uh, much difference. There is, of course, the argument that um, you know, we've already referred to, that uh, thousands, thousands of children will be forced out of their private schools and forced to go to state schools. And that, you know, even more importantly, this will be, yes, a burden on the state schools that they won't be able to absorb, etc., etc. But as Hannah says, I think that's extremely unlikely. I am, you know, it, it is it is great that people, there are some people willing to pay more. I heard James O'Brien uh, make the same point yesterday. Um, he sends his kids to a private school and uh, he was saying he was happy to pay more. Uh, as a parent of kids at a state school, it is depressing to hear how many people on the left feel unable to send their kids to state schools. I hope that uh, if they do improve under a Labour government, they will feel able to uh, to, to change, change their minds. I think feel unable is rather generous. Well, they, I, they, they, a choice has been made, and I'm sure sometimes it felt like the only choice that could be made. And sometimes mm -hmm. I think it was a choice made. Because they had the money and it seemed nice. Yeah, I think there are a variety of, of reasons. And, uh, and you know, whenever I bring up this subject on, on social media, there are always people who say, I'm sorry, I felt I had no choice. Local schools were just too terrible. And, you know, uh, it, it, it's, it, different people have different circumstances sure. and perhaps we shouldn't judge. But it would be great. The greatest thing you can do for state schools, as well as paying taxes for them, is to send your kids there. Because it is, it is uh, uh, ambitious parents like you who help make them better. Yeah, I mean, I, I have uh, not very many very, very strong, um, extreme political views. And one of them is I think private schools are a bad thing <laughs> and should be abolished com completely. Yeah, I agree. Um, uh, as someone who went to one briefly for a couple of years uh, and then went to a state school for the rest of my education, I, uh, yeah, I I just think they're, a, I think they are the root of so many of the problems in this country politically. The fact that we have a political class who essentially don't feel connected to people who they are in charge of. Um, I think there's a real sort of sense of dislocation, a lack of community feeling in so many of the people who end up in leadership positions because they don't understand the people, you know, the vast majority of people's experience, um, and it's not seven percent of people who go to the private school. It's seven percent of children. You're right, yeah. which I think is is crucial as well because it's still it's quite a small percentage for a small percentage. Mm. So it's sort of it's a tiny amount of people each year who get this huge benefit. Now, I'm a realist. Obviously, there's no way that's ever going to happen. That they're all going to be abolished. Um, so yeah, I think I think anything that says to people this is a privilege that needs to be paid for, and definitely shouldn't get some sort of charitable benefit for, I think is uh, I, I'm I'm all on board with that. And, and also I think you've, we've got to accept that people, when when um, the the writer says um, you know, am I a rare beast? I think well yeah, but we accept the other way around. We accept that people vote against their economic interests all mm. the time for mm. other things. Mm. Um, we you know that's the whole sort of story of 
populism, isn't it? That people will vote against their economic self-interest for cultural reasons. And I think, why not turn it the other way around? That, yeah, people should vote for against their economic self-interest for it's cultural gratif- reasons. It's gratifying. I hope that there are more parents like that. Now, the Tories love to invoke the values of real British people, unlike the unreal ones sitting in this room and listening to us, when they wage war on far-left wokery. But what do British people actually believe? Since 1969, the National Centre for Social Research has set out to gauge the mood of the nation by talking to people instead of for and about them. Weird. In 1983, it launched the British Social Attitude Survey. The new report, written by loquacious friend of the pod, John Curtis, is out now. Roz, I found this quite cheering. Uh, Two big numbers here, showing that Britons are both more liberal and more left-wing than at any time in the survey's history, with a dramatic shift in both uh, columns since 2019. And in fact, today's 55-year-old is more liberal than 1993's 25-year-old. And that's the same person. <laughs> so it's not uh, its not just generational. Obviously, younger people, you mm. know, just need more liberal than their, than their parents. But it's, it's the same people. Did that surprise you? No, it didn't, actually. Because I was thinking back to 1993 was the year I left school. I was thinking back to the cohort I was with. I remember one teacher asking uh, a class I was in, do you think uh, homosexuality should be illegal? And uh, everyone but me put up their hand up. Even then, I was a sad liberal. Yeah, um, this is the this is the Britpop kids, man. And what I don't and I don't I don't believe. I mean, this was rural Shropshire, so you know it was not urban. <laughs> but um, I do not believe that all the people I was at school with still hold that view um, at all. I'm pretty sure most of them are absolutely fine now with um, gay people and gay marriage. And there was an absolute sea change in my daughter's um, cohort of in terms of tolerance of all kinds of sexualities. Basically, <laughs> what I would say is that there are some prejudices that have not gone away. And again, the prejudice against people with disabilities, for example, is still alive and well. And the BSA doesn't, the British Social Attitudes, doesn't look at that at all, doesn't monitor it. Sometimes prejudice migrates, and especially it migrates among... Among kids who are can often are often capable of being extraordinarily cruel and nasty to each other, and I think that we still have a problem with that kind of prejudice because you know gay people are not seen as a drain on society. Disabled people are. Were you surprised by the shift since 2019? So if you if you put it over like 30 years, you go sure, you know the country's likely mm. to become more liberal. But if you look at the left wing measure, and this is obviously uh, this is people self describing their values. Mm. You know, they're not just saying are you right wing or you left wing. They're going, what do you think about all these different things, and then they calculate the number from there. A dramatic shift since then. I mean, I was trying to work mm. out whether sort of Brexit and Corbynism sort of cancelled each other out because it didn't it's seem a- to move that much. <laughs> it's a pandemic thing. It's since the pandemic has changed. It's, it's radicalised everyone. And it's, it's, it's radicalised younger people. If you drill down the figures, it's younger people who are getting further left since the pandemic. Although there is a paradox here. They don't want higher taxation and they don't want higher spending. And simultaneously, they feel welfare cuts have gone too far. Now, how do you square that circle? I mean, you can't really. But... It speaks to a story of generational unfairness and younger people feeling that, you know, there is a welfare state that they're not benefiting from and they really can't afford to contribute anything more towards it because they are so overstretched. Do these figures challenge the the idea that people are only switching to Labour because the Tories are so very useless? You know, and it, it is, is Starmer and the Labour leadership sort of failing to uh, to notice or reflect that if you really have had this significant uh, shift leftwards since since 2019. It, it suggests that actually a lot of people might be voting Labour or might even find Labour insufficiently left-wing because their values are changing. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, it, it reminds me a little bit of what we talked about right at the beginning about rejoin, that we're in a situation where half the country is in favour of something that none of the political parties are willing to countenance. Apart from, apart from the Greens. Apart from the Greens. Um, and, uh, and and maybe we're in a similar situation here that the parties are almost behind the population, that for the parties coming out of COVID has almost been a question of trying to sort of reset back to where we were before. And Labour is trying to do this very sort of don't scare the horses. Let's try not to mention Brexit. Let's not try to mention anything that's too left wing in case it reminds people of Corbyn. And actually, perhaps the the change in yeah, in people's attitudes is way ahead of that. And I, but then maybe it is more, more in the younger cohort of people who therefore are less, unfortunately, less likely to vote, less likely to live in uh, marginal constituencies. So perhaps in a way the country is kind of ahead of people on average, but the 
the parties know that actually the people they need to get are still the older people, still people who maybe aren't quite as far ahead on that sort of change. So broadly speaking, we're talking about uh, sexuality, attitudes, sexuality, attitudes to race, attitudes to, um, you know, unmarried parents, uh, abortion, some of these things that, that were not so long ago, you know, really, really quite divisive. Um, and, and the country has become more liberal across the generational mm. cohorts. Now, the right is obviously invested in making out that the UK is more sort of prejudiced than the figures show, because mm. obviously that's who Sarala Bravman is talking to. But there are parts of the left that are invested in that as well, and got a racist island and stuff like that. And mm. it's not to mean that any of these prejudices have gone away and that you should not take them seriously. But is there, a, is there perhaps like a danger on the left of, of, of thinking, oh, this is... This is this country is so bigoted. I find sometimes if I tweet about Swala Bravman, which I do quite a lot, people go, "It's going to work, though." She knows who she's talking to. Yeah, and it's like, well, this, this survey at least suggests not. It's a really difficult, one, isn't it? Because I think, on the one hand, obviously, you never want to say anything like that has been solved. No, <laughs> no, we're never. You know, we we definitely haven't got to a point where you know racism or sexism or um, you know anti uh, homophobia or things like that have been have been solved. But I think it is worth saying, and it is worth occasionally. I think I guess the problem with the left is the left is always trying to improve things, and that's great. That is always stop is always trying to push forwards. There's always progress to be made. You know, we never want to rest on our laurels. But I think perhaps that does mean sometimes it feels almost a bit relentless and a bit like a bit like it won't take the the victory and there is a victory here there is a sense that things have improved a lot and i think perhaps sometimes it is worth people on the sort of progressive side of things stopping for a second i'm not saying you know leaning back and saying everything's done but saying yeah let's celebrate our successes something positive is happening we are bringing people with us generally people are now believing more what we think mm. than what the right thinks and that's a really positive thing and it's sort of I was, you know, I always think of that sort of classic thing about the left looks for enemies, the right looks for allies. And I think we should turn that round in this situation because mm. actually turns out lots of people are allies of the left, but they don't want to. But the danger is that if you go on, you know, Twitter, then and you say something that's a millimetre to the right of something that someone left has said, they'll attack you and call you a fascist. And so there's that danger that if you don't. If you don't let people say, well, yeah, we, we've, we have come a long way, there's still a long way to go, but we've come a long way, then people perhaps can start feeling a bit sort of depressed about it and mm. think, oh, you know, oh, I may as well, oh, you can't say anything these days, all that kind of nonsense. And then you end up kind of getting dragged in that direction. Sounds like something a fascist might say. <laughs> um, the big exception in the liberalising trend is attitudes towards trans people. Prejudice, the word used in the survey and literally used in the questions, has doubled from 18% to 36%. Support for self-ID has plunged from 53% to 30%. While women, young people, the more educated and the less religious are more liberal, uh, the trend holds across all groups, you know, the, the movement there. Um, what's happened there since 2019? Can I introduce you to the concept of the British press? Um, I think that's, I mean, it's become a big part of the culture war, obviously. And I think, um, and it's been a, it's been a, a quick change that um, in only a few years, I think it feels like an issue that perhaps used to be seen as something very personal uh, and people thought it was an issue of personal choice and quite a quite a small issue. People, you know, weren't thinking about it all the time. And if you ask somebody about it, they wouldn't necessarily have thought about it before. And so they thought, you know, we'll just, you know, let bygones be bygones, let people do what they want to do. And now there's a, there's a lot of talk about it. There's a lot of controversy about it. There's a lot of um, sort of anti-trans rhetoric in the press. Um, that's had a big impact. Um, and I think it does show that, you know, progress in inverted commas can go in both directions, that you can have, you can, if you make a lot of noise about an issue, it can change attitudes. And that can happen to, to any any group. Uh, Hannah, let's talk about economic views. Um, recently, you may have noticed that Trussite neoliberals have been plotting a comeback. Uh, not an immediate comeback. But the report shows unprecedented enthusiasm for state intervention. More than half want to increase taxation and spending on public services. The number of people who want state support for industry and control over prices has more than doubled since 2006, or at least influence over prices. I don't think they want the state setting all the prices. <laughs> so this seems to me like a, a kind of new, a new age of Keynes in terms of what people want the state to do and an extremely bad time uh, for kind of small state laissez-faire think tankers. 
Well, it's interesting because on the one hand, they say that. And on the other hand, they, they worry about how taxation will hit them and whether they feel that they, you know, they, they could contribute more. So uh, it's, an, it's an interesting paradox. But I think it is exciting to see people feeling really positive about public investment and what public services mean for them. Um, I do think the pandemic has had a huge impact on that because we depended quite literally, many people, on the state to survive during that period and the state stepped up. So I think it has shifted a mindset around what the, the role of the state is. Um, so that's that's a good thing from my perspective. But, you know, when you say they don't want full state control, actually support for rent control on prices is, is, is quite high. So in some sectors, yes, they do want that. Well, um, as Ross pointed out, there's a there's a there's an interesting sort of blip here in terms of young people or being, um, you know, woke reds, um, is that they are much less keen on increasing taxes and spending. Forty three percent of younger people versus sixty seven percent of older people. So, on that, if you just took that stat, you'd think that it was the boomers. Yeah, who were being uh, who, who were the lefties? So, because <laughs> it doesn't seem to add up in terms of any of the other values on the left-right scale. Is is this just it's like a howl of generational unfairness rather than a kind of uh, a trussite approach to taxation? I do think it is that. Um, yeah, that's what I was just referring to. So you got this, this yeah, yeah. overwhelmingly the, the people that coming particular through, generation. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I do think it's the latter. What do they get in return? Actually, to be fair. Um, the social compact has completely broken down. They're getting very little in return. They know they're not getting a triple lock pension. They are definitely feeling sort of, why should I pay for the boomers' comfortable life? And there's a lot wrong with that statement and sentiment. It's much more complex, but you can understand its arrival. You know, that, that that's how people start to feel. Um, you that... know, if the public wants a lot more from government, as Sorry. these figures suggest, then they have got to pay for it. But then if you sort out the issues like housing and job stability and cost of living, then people will feel much more warm about the mm. idea of being a contributor as well as a, um, a receiver in that relationship. I just wonder if part of it's to do with student loan, uh, student fees that um, mm. that effectively lots of younger people have a marginal tax rate, which mm. is enormous yeah. now. Yeah. Um, and so it's maybe not so much them saying we don't want to pay for stuff. It's like we're already paying <laughs> Through the nose, we're already paying a higher marginal tax rate than Rishi Sunak is. You know, then why should we have to pay any more? So I just want to say about this whole survey: it's well worth reading online. It's very sort of clearly laid out, and there are so many sort of interesting kind of trends and wrinkles. And one thing for some of this age gap that we talk about in politics has really only opened up in the last few years in the on the left-right axis. And yet, at the same time, as somebody pointed out, like. If you look at all the big anti-status quo movements of the last few years, whether that is sort of um, Brexit, Corbynism, uh, Scottish independence, even now rejoin, most of the main figures are boomers. They still really want to change the, change the world. And obviously with Corbynism, you had a kind of a mix and they're sort of missing out the middle uh, <laughs> a, lot, a lot of the time age-wise. But it's just, it's, it sort of gives you this data and then it also gives you all of these fascinating uh, contradictions and, and, and holes and questions. And, and one of them, Roz, is that there are, uh, the Open Society Foundation also studies social attitudes in 30 countries. Mm. And their latest report tells a different story. They say, and it's quite startling, just 57% of 18 to 35-year-olds believe democracy is the best system versus 71% of older generations. And 42% of young people in these 30 countries say that uh, army rule would be good. So is this, this does include countries like Russia, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan. It's yeah. a it's a whole, it's a mixed bag of, of nations there. How does the UK come out of it? Does, does this make the UK a bastion of liberalism while we're kind of, uh, you know, running towards liberalism? In some ways it does, although you wouldn't think it to look at the headline figures because 82% of Britain say it's important to them to, uh, to live in a democracy. Mm. And that is much less, oddly, than Turkey, China, India... Places which uh, arguably uh, a bit less democratic than uh, the UK. And 
people clearly have different ideas of what is democratic and no shared understanding of it. When you drill down, though, and ask people if they want army rule mm. or if they want a leader who doesn't bother with parliament or elections, then actually the situation changes. And Britons then say they're not keen on that at all. And the only country less keen on that than us is Japan. Well, that's very... Because <laughs> Japan has experienced basic military yeah. rule, didn't go well. Um well, that is no, that is really reassuring because I was worried that I was trying to make we don't want that everything, democracy everything add up. It's like young people, liberal, yeah. left, not so keen on higher taxes, really into coups. <laughs> like it was. Uh, it's like fun. we just we don't like the abstract, you know, idea, or we're not very keen on the abstract idea. But when it comes down to, it, we mean the army ruling us. We're actually not not that keen in this country. Well, and this you, is good. the massive the massive differences you see, uh, which were particularly interesting for me. Uh, in trust. So 76% of Chinese say they trust politicians. 20% of Brits say they trust politicians, which may not surprise you very much. But it's 15% in France, which of course is infamously distrustful of its politicians. Mm -hmm. And yet that does not reflect the lived reality. I think we can agree. It's more a, a societal attitude than a genuine comparison between the state of people, people's lives in different countries. Well, this is the caveat with all of these, is that these are the stated values. They're not necessarily borne out by, um, you know, voting behaviour. But I think that if I was a conservative looking at these figures, particularly if I was socially conservative and economically very free market, and I would see this as this kind of like dead zone <laughs> politically. Yeah, I mean... There are reasons for the Conservative Party as it currently sits to be very worried. Um, but it does make you wonder, if they've seen these stats, you would presume at least somebody <laughs> in their depart planning, future planning department is looking at this. They really must realise that the, the woke wars are a terrible mistake because there's potentially a large group of economic conservatives mm. who are extremely socially liberal and would get on board with a future Tory party that mm. flipped it. Mm. Yeah, again, I'm afraid the Tories don't seem to be very good at this. <laughs> And that's the end of the show. Uh, before we go, let's, uh, let's do a quick round of Under the Radar. Uh, Matt, kick us off. Well, my Under the Radar was that last week a report found that 95% of all NFTs are now completely worthless. <laughs> that's quite funny. <laughs> Which, I mean, I think we all felt that that was going to happen, but it happened pretty quickly. It's a couple of years since the big boom. And um, and also, but also the sort of sting in the tail is because they're sort of crypto based, they take up a lot of energy. And so um, apparently all the crypt, all the NFTs in the world mm. add up to the equivalent of over 2000 homes energy a year. Uh, so it's literally just people burning money, essentially, that's what's happened. And I just feel quite smug about it because when it sort of first started, I was asked to do some sort of comedy NFTs. I didn't even know what that really was. And I sort of was, I feel like that's just environmentally bad and a scam. And so I didn't do it. And I'm very glad because... Well, I just didn't really understand what they were. And then when I did understand what they were, I was like, maybe I don't know, you know, enough to dismiss this. And then I saw the bored ape things. And yeah. then I'm like, no, just... Yeah, you can't like dismiss this. Yeah. If this is the aesthetics of these people, this will not end well. Yeah. Uh, Roz? Uh, well, last week on Oh God, What Now, I talked about how I wasn't convinced that freedom of movement in the EU would last actually that much longer. Sadly, uh, within the last week, um, the, this is beginning to come to pass. There's been a visa corruption scandal in Poland, which you might, might not have heard about. But basically, um, corrupt consular officials have been accused of issuing tens, potentially tens of thousands of uh, visas for money, which obviously also give access to the EU because Poland is an EU member. And because of this, uh, and because um, they say that uh, migrants, too many migrants are coming over from Poland, Germany is now reintroducing border checks with Poland and the Czech Republic. And Poland is also threatening to do the same on their side for exactly the same reasons. They say there are too many refugees coming from Germany and they don't feel secure either. So it's not looking terribly good. Hannah, we so, got good news, bad news. We've had one of each. News, sorry. Okay. Uh, this we should is... just call under the radar good news, bad news. <laughs> <laughs> but it's always bad. 
This one's bad. It's um, an exclusive uh, story from um, Pete Apps, who we've had on the show before. He's a um, housing journalist. He won the Orwell Prize for his book on Grenfell. Uh, he has discovered that Leveling Up Department has basically been accused of suppressing a report which is into the fire risk around modern methods of construction, which is a complicated way of basically saying building stuff in in factories and then sticking them in, in the ground to save money uh, on building houses. Leaked emails that he's seen reveal that this report should have been published last summer, in 20, about this time last year, in fact, September 2022. Um, they've been sitting on it. And why does it, one year on something so techy as that matter? Because the government has ordered at least a quarter of its new social housing to be built using these methods. So if there's a massive fire risk, we really ought to know about it and we should probably be stopping using these methods. I'm afraid I also have bad news. One, uh, this was covered in a Bunker Global episode, actually, last week. One third of Armenians in the disputed region of Nagorno-Karabakh have fled to Armenia following a military offensive by Azerbaijan, which has been uh, internationally condemned. There's a lot of angles on this, the kind of relationship between these countries and, and Russia and how weak Russia is. The one that interested me is that Azerbaijan, since the invasion of Ukraine, has been courting European politicians and businesses as an energy supplier to replace Russia, despite allegations of war crimes in the region in 2020 and the fact that it is another authoritarian regime. Um, and just, uh, I think, a few days ago, they had um, they had a very jolly conference uh, in Mayfair. Um, about why you should um, invest in in Azerbaijan just before they invade uh, this region and displace a third of Armenians. Um, and there is talk of whether there should be sanctions. It seems to me that, that, that there should be. But I mean, the, the lesson one learns over and over again, and I know it's you can't transition to, you know, renewables uh, overnight and become, you know, self-sufficient in energy. Like, how many times are we going to see that this country that has been selling us, you know, gas or oil turns out to be run by a bunch of bastards who do war crimes? Just seems like perhaps a, another example of that. And if possible, we should probably do that as little as possible. Thank you so much to Matt. Thank you. Uh, Roz. Thank you. And Hannah. Thank you. Stick around for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional thank you to our generous supporters. You could join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots more. Search Oh God What Now Patreon to find out how. Many thanks to brand new backers Sandra Burnick, David Lister, and returning as a supporter because it's a great thing to do. Robert O'Malley, thank you and welcome back. Hello, and a huge thank you from me to Zoe Yacoub, uh, Glenn Bentley, and another returning supporter. Hello and welcome back to Gregor Shepherd. Big shout and enormous thanks from me to Fraser Smith, Mithili Ayer, and Rachel Perkin. And thanks from me to Emma, Jakob Udjepsen, and Matt Garner. We'll see you next time. Oh God, What Now is presented by Dorian Linsky with Ros Taylor, Matt Green, and Anna Fern. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, the managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Chris Jones, with me, Alex Reese, and assistant production by Adam Wright. Socials by Jess Harpin. Art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production. The Hollywood writer's strike is coming to an end after a tentative agreement was reached this week. What did the 148-day-long action teach us about the way writers and creators in the film industry are treated? And what concessions have they and the big bosses made to get shows back on the road? Matt, you are a bridge to the glittering world of showbiz. Thank you. <laughs> what does the agreement look like? Um, well, it's, it's still sort of slightly hot off the press, so some of these details might turn out to be not quite exactly right. But um, it does seem like the WGA have got quite a lot of what they were asking for. Apparently, the deal is worth $233 million annually, which is three times the original offer. So that's pretty good. Um, they have made uh, progress on pay, although it seems like pay has maybe been the thing that they've negotiated and, um, and sort of compromised on the most. 
Um, something that I thought was fascinating is that streamers will now give the WGA details of the total hours viewed of their shows, both domestically and internationally, which has never been happen never happened before. Like streamers have always been very careful and very closed about it's what that they've been able to get away with that. Really. Amazing. And this is a really I think this could be in some ways the most significant part of the deal because it means that people will find out exactly how many hours of X show is being watched. Uh, and as a result, they will pay a bonus for shows that have done very well and uh, a, a sort of equivalent of the residual royalties that you used to get. Because it used to be with network stuff is that you'd make a lot of money on repeats yeah. and syndications. Or... Yeah, exactly. And and since streaming came along and just blew that process out of the water, a lot of people have said, well, it's impossible. Like I know writers and creatives who've made shows for Netflix and they and it says you know number one show this week or something, but they've got no idea how many people that is, or around, that could be millions of people around the world. It could be a few hundred thousand. You know they've no idea, and that seems to now be something that they've agreed. Um, they've agreed some minimums on writers' rooms, dependent on how many episodes there are. So shorter episodes mean uh, shorter series mean fewer writers, yeah. and. They've done some various technical things about pensions and health insurance, which I think will be good. Um, and the key issue, which it sounds like they haven't fully agreed on, but they've kind of come to an agreement, is um, AI. They've agreed that um, they can't have an original script written by AI, that writers can use AI but won't be forced to use it. And the studios have kept the right, which is something that the writers wanted to stop them doing, but they kept the right to use scripts to train AI, but they've left that open right. as something they, they can challenge in the future. So I think overall, it feels like quite a positive um, result. Hannah, The Atlantic has just uh, released a searchable database of books that have been used to train AI chatbots mm -hmm. without permission. Um, and because I, uh, I'm obviously a narcissist, <laughs> I searched my name and, and both of mine are in there. So then they're not that picky. Has AI sort of freaked out creatives like like nothing else? Yes. <laughs> and not just creatives. I don't think my job as a journalist is always necessarily that creative. When I'm doing news reporting, sometimes it's actually the opposite. That was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more I got one hour every week without ads and a day early, then do yourself a favour and sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else?, every Monday morning and some merchandise. Thank you for listening and see you next week.